Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Image today is everything. We see images and memes, videos, Instagram, Facebook photos, TikTok, Snapchat. The Civil War was revolutionary in its own image-making way as the first American war to be photographed. The images don't move, they're not in color, but they have surprising depth and they tell remarkable stories. Our guest, Ronald S. Coddington, has made a career of these photographs and has assembled them into books that reveal what's behind the faces we see in the pictures. His latest is Faces of Civil War Nurses. We'll discuss it with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, teaching for them, but not representing them tonight, not speaking for them, not in their building. And likewise, my guest will speak only for himself, as we always do. Well, I want to thank everyone again, as I did last week, for the very helpful advice that many of you have sent me about purchasing an e-reader. As you might imagine, with 500 episodes of this show complete each the vast majority of them about uh, a book. I've got a lot of books in the office and a lot of books at home. I'm sure many of you do as well. And I, I long ago passed the point where the question upon seeing a new book is not, can I afford it, but can I find a place to put it? So I'm thinking maybe it's time to move into the electronic realm and at least have some books uh, where where they're ethereal. And uh, your advice has been extremely helpful. I have not yet pulled the trigger on buying a 
Kindle or other device. Uh, having a PhD, it's important that I overanalyze everything, read all the pros and cons until I've worked myself into a complete state of paralysis and then end up buying whatever is on the table at the local electronics store. That's that's my wife will assure you that's how this is bound to go. Uh, I'll keep you posted when when that happens. Here on campus this past week saw a meeting of the ad hoc building names committee that the chancellor asked me to uh, to run with the task of doing research on the names of the 80 or so buildings on campus that are named for people to find out if any of them are people who are not the kind, whose values are not those we want represented on campus today. And of course, it's a controversial question. Uh, many people will argue correctly about uh, to what level one can apply contemporary values to historical figures, but we can also recognize that as values change, it's not necessarily uh, unthinkable to revisit some of those original names if indeed their fame uh, is associated with things that we find abhorrent today. So uh, we had a meeting, we reviewed five prominent names and are sending recommendations forward about changing uh, four of them, but whether that'll be accepted or not, we don't know. Because the meeting was uh, a, a, because we're a public university, the meeting was technically an open meeting, so there were media uh, people observing it. It was a Zoom meeting. They were, well, not Zoom, what do we use here? Microsoft Teams, get that plug in. Uh, so people were watching us from, from their offices, and they publicized it. And so it started to get some feedback from the community on one uh, sports message board where ECU Pirate fans meet to complain about the football team. There were some threads, uh, ECU to change building names, in which I learned that I am both a complete idiot, uh, but also a Harvard elitist who wants to make ECU into Harvard, which it should not be. I have to say I was pleased to get the Harvard recognition there. I don't think I've mentioned in some time in the show that I have a degree from Harvard. Uh, so I got that. Uh, but amidst the abuse of one-liners, one alum posted a really thoughtful message uh, in which the person observed that my surname suggested I had Polish or Ukrainian ancestry, and that they're right on both counts. And the person said, therefore, I'm probably descended from immigrants in the last two generations, right again, all four of my grandparents are immigrants, in contrast to the writer's family that came to the American colonies in 1636. And his point was not to claim a prize for winning an ancestor lottery, uh, but rather to point out that we had probably been raised with different views of the past, and that is certainly true. In terms of the Civil War, for example, since I had no blood relations involved in it, I don't have a dog in this fight, genealogically speaking. And that reduces the amount of emotional conflict I feel when pointing out things like secession was motivated by the desire to preserve slavery, or that the Confederacy was, as, as U.S. Grant said, um, a cause, I don't have the words in front of me, for which no men ever fought so bravely or with less excuse, something to that effect, uh, an inexcusable cause in Grant's view. And, and I share that. And at the same time, 
my experience does make me feel drawn to Lincoln's interpretation of the United States as a nation based on ideals, not just a random collection of people who happen to be born in the same place. And as Lincoln said in a, a speech in the 1850s, the United States was open to anyone in the world who wanted to come here as long as they bought into the basic premise. All men are created equal, the Constitution, the Declaration. And Lincoln said as long as people accept and adopt those ideals, they become blood of the blood, bone of the bone of America just as much as anyone who, whose family came over on the Mayflower. And, of course, the corollary to that is those who reject those ideals and the Constitution and try to replace those ideals with something else as the essence of Americanism, whether it's birth or race or wealth or religion, language or anything else, uh, need to find a new title to replace American because they're, they're onto something different. Uh, and so the, the person writing in was right. I, it, it does affect how I view the past, uh, just as, as the writer's view does and yours does and everyone's does. Uh, but that's part of why you study history, and part of, and as long as the historian, or reader of history, is aware of what they bring to the table, that we can go forward and have and talk about it. Which is what we'll be doing over the next couple of weeks here on Civil War Talk Radio. We have uh, a series of intriguing shows coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week, February third, two thousand and twenty-one, still in the first month of the second year of the plague. Uh, our guest next week will be David uh, Conan, or Conan, I'll have to ask him, uh, who has written about Iowa Confederates in the Civil War. We'll find out who they were and why. On February 10th, we'll do a Lincoln-themed show talking about the Lincoln Funeral Train Project with Shannon Brown. On the 17th, Brian Taylor will be here. He has a new book, Fighting for Citizenship, Black Northerners, and the Debate over Military Service in the Civil War. And on 24th of February, rounding out the month, a, uh, I believe a former student of Gary Gallagher, uh, her name is Cynthia Nicoletti, has written Secession on Trial, the Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. More good things coming up in March, but you can go to impedimentsofwar.org or the Facebook Impediments of War page and find out who's next on the schedule. And while you're at the website, you can click on the PayPal button to donate to the Civil War book and e-reader and anything else I choose fund. It's tax time, but your donation is not tax deductible. Please don't try to get away with that. Uh, and thank you all to who, who have contributed in the past. Uh, shout out to Peg Schweitzer, who's rejoined the ranks of monthly recurring contributors if you can make a recurring con contribution of even a few dollars, your conscience will be salved every time you listen to a show. You'll feel that warm glow of superior virtue over those who every week say, yeah, I, I should do that. I should, I'll should. i donate after the episode. Then the episode ends and you finish making dinner or mowing the lawn or commuting or whatever you're doing while you're listening and the thought vanishes until the next episode. And again, the thought returns to gnaw at your conscience. Uh, Recurring donations can fix all that. Well, our guest tonight is Ronald S. Coddington. He's the author of Faces of Civil War Nurses, one in a series of photographic works uh, on faces of the Civil War. And he's been to the show before. Ron, welcome back. Can you hear me? 
I can, Jerry. Delighted to be here. Uh, super excited to talk with you again. Well, it's good to have you. You were last here five years ago. We were talking about the faces of Civil War navies. And that book, like this one, because it consists of, of a picture, a photograph, and then a story associated with it, is one of those books that you can just read as much or as little as you want at a time. Uh, you, you read one story, look at the photograph, so that's interesting, I'll read about that. You read two or three pages, you're done. You think, oh, I'll just do one more. Well, I'll just do one more. These are the, the <laughs> Lay's potato chips of Civil War <laughs> photography books. Uh, you just have to keep reading the next one and the next one. And uh, I very much enjoy them. Well, let me start by asking about how you're doing. Uh, when you were last here in 2016, you talked about Military Images magazine uh, that you were publishing. Is that uh, still ongoing? It is. Uh, Military Images has been around for more than 40 years. Really? And it was founded, yeah, it was founded in the late 70s, uh, along uh, or during a period in time when the Civil War artifacts, uh, the collector's market was beginning to grow and take form. A number of publications were being launched about that time, and books written, guidebooks, uh, and other um, pamphlets and things like that. And so Military Images was founded to help people like me who were obsessed by these intriguing images of soldiers, sailors, uh, women, children, but not really understanding much about uh, how the images came to be, what their purpose was, and how great a part of the social fabric of the Civil War period they were. So uh, I've now been editing the magazine for seven years, and um, it's been going strong. I've been having a great time. The Civil War collecting community, I've learned, I've always known they were generous with their time and expertise and sharing their collections true caretakers of artifacts. And um, if, if I've learned anything over the last few years, it's been that that vibrant community is there and um, they've been fantastic to work with. Well, that, that is, that's one of the things that's so appealing about Civil War study is the community that it fosters. Um, you and I were talking for just a moment early before the show and you mentioned, you, you'd heard from listeners of this show after you were on last time, uh, this this uh, Civil War talk radio has its community. The collectors, or collectors communities, reenactor communities, scholarly communities, where we're we're all in it together, and and hopefully can uh, use those bonds to reaffirm things we we share in common. Um, last week, the guest on the show had a book about hospitals at Gettysburg, and this week we've got nurses. And it, it was not planned that way, it just worked out so. But it made me think that the topic of the aftermath of battle, of, of the, the wounds caused, the, the cost paid, is maybe more on people's minds uh, than it used to be. It, did, did that bring you, is that what brought you to this topic? I, um, the, the, one of the big motivators happens to be 
the books, the series of books, uh, and coming to the realization that through their portrait photographs and through their stories, I was capturing some larger narratives from the war. Mm-hmm. Union soldiers, Confederate soldiers, African-American participants, uh, Navy on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to do something that examined the role of women uh, during the war. And nurses seemed to be a natural fit in many ways. What I was unprepared for uh, was the, uh, just the, the amount of death and suffering they saw and experienced and helped to, uh, to stop and to tend to, to these soldiers. I, um, I spend my mornings in the 19th century researching and <laughs> writing uh, and, lo- and loving it. Uh, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful way for me to start the day. Uh, but this four years working on this project exposed me to some of the most horrific parts of what comes after the fighting ends. Uh, it's just, uh, and, and how, uh, how, how much short shrift it actually gets. It's really, it um, really, really spent a lot of time with it. It, it does, it is easy for us to overlook it in, in the, uh, the more appealing aspects of the war. In terms of these nurses, I'm curious to know about how, what makes someone a Civil War nurse in your definition, but we're going to take a short break first and come back with that question in just a minute. We're talking today with Ronald S. Coddington, author of Faces of Civil War Nurses, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show The Sharon Kleiner Hour Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Ron Coddington, author of Faces of Civil War Nurses. Ron, my, I was telling my wife today about tonight's show and about your book, and she mentioned that uh, Testament of Youth by Vera Britton is one of her favorite uh, uh, memoirs about a woman, you know, famous Civil, not Civil War, World War One English uh, woman who nurses soldiers, but has no training for it. She, she's not a medical person, but in the press of wartime, she ends up dealing with the kind of wounds you were talking about at the end of the, the first segment, the, the horror of war. Was that the case in, in the Civil War? Are the, Who are these nurses? Are they, they're not trained products of nursing schools, are they? Very few. Your wife would be right at home reading about the Civil War nurses. Um, you, uh, The way that I put some context around this uh, is um, through Florence Nightingale, Crimean War. She writes a book, a rather thin volume, published in 1859, I believe. Uh, her notes, it's sort of a, it's a rudimentary guidebook, if you will. And in that book, she makes the argument that, that every woman is a nurse. And uh, that's her way of suggesting that the training that you've had growing up, what you've been exposed to, and using some practical common sense will get you started. That book lands in America. There's an 1860 edition that drives the point home a little bit more. And um, I believe that that was certainly a motivating factor. Interestingly, I didn't find many nurses who directly reference Florence Nightingale, but the popularity of her book coincident with the American Civil War certainly had to have touched a number of these individuals. It sort of led me down the path to your question about the definition of a nurse. I, um, I started out instinctively thinking, well, uh, any any woman who was accepted to serve through the um, formal military channels under Dorothea Dix or in the Confederate Army would be a candidate. And certainly they would be a candidate for inclusion. But as I began to learn more about nursing, I realized, gosh, what about all the individuals that volunteered through philanthropic organizations the Sanitary Commission, the Christian Commission. So I thought, well, I should, I should expand to include a representative sampling of those individuals. And then I began to read more stories. Uh, the wife who went across the lines to care for her husband who was wounded. Uh, the folks who were living in their town when the war came to them. Uh, those individuals, when you start to think about the diversity of experiences of how women became exposed to nursing, 
you have to cast, I think, a much wider net if you want to tell that that whole story. So my definition ultimately became, it, it sounds ridiculously simple when I say it, uh, and that is uh, uh, every woman in the book attended a wounded soldier or a sick soldier in some capacity on at least one occasion. So it, it, it's funny how that dovetails with what, again, talking last week uh, uh, about the hospitals at Gettysburg, a wonderful guidebook published about that, uh, and how every house could become a field hospital, either an official one set up by the Army, or just, hey, let's bring these guys in here. And, uh, you know, now there's one or two men recovering, and it's a hospital. So so what we have today, we're so accustomed to a formal system of health care. They, they hardly have that here. Um, yeah, I, I feel, um, although the, the term humanitarian crisis might be a bit too much, I think it's, it's not unreasonable to suggest uh, post-battle circumstances mm-hmm. being something of a humanitarian crisis. You have mass casualties that uh, are in relatively remote locations. Keeping in mind, um, uh, Sharpsburg, Maryland, is was not an easily accessible place. You can't just drive down the highway and get there. Uh, nor was uh, Pittsburgh Landing, um, Shiloh, and um, you get there by riverboat. Um, so really, these places, these small places, way out of the way, with thousands of casualties. Trying to get to them alone was uh, was a feat, and um, all of those, both women and men, who made the journey to help, those stories are are part of what I really wanted to focus on in the book. And there are some some great stories you mentioned. Shiloh, I'm thinking of uh, Belle Reynolds, the uh, the major. Uh, yes. that she became. Uh, she was at Shiloh. She was there. The, the scene. Uh, that I uh, talk about in in her story is it occurs um, the first night after the the first night of the battle and the soldiers are still in a bit of a panic mode and not realizing what's going on. On the Union side, the battle seems very lost and the wounded men have been moved onto some transports, not all of them, but Bill Reynolds is on one of these transports. Healthy men who are uninjured, um, but are either panicked or unsure of what's going on. They certainly don't know what the next day is going to bring. And they've been through a horrific day. They are uh, trying to get on the transport. And an officer gives Bell um, a pair of pistols and puts her on the deck uh, and says, listen, you know, uh, I don't recall the exact words, even if they existed, but guess what? Now you're not only a nurse, you're a guard. You're going to guard this boat. Uh, and so just uh, just one example of what was going on in Shiloh, at Shiloh, and what she saw and what other medical professionals saw while they were there. No, that that is a, a great story of her defending the gangplank. Exactly. Uh, the uh, how did doing the research for this book compare to your other books? You, you've written about faces of the Confederacy, faces of 
African Americans in the Civil War, faces of the navies. Uh, was this similar? Were there substantial differences? Going in, I was nervous about uh, not having access to my traditional primary source documents, military, military service records, pension files, uh, the official records, you know, all of those standard Civil War primary texts. The nurses, uh, as it turns out, and some of your listeners may be aware, something in the neighborhood of 2,400 union nurses uh, received pensions, so that proved helpful. Also, the number of books written shortly after the war, uh, two of them, um, which are I would describe them as almost regimental histories or nurse corps histories that profile, I didn't count them, but dozens if not hundreds of women were really helpful. And then you've got the number of uh, narratives, uh, Three Weeks at Gettysburg by Georgie Woolsey and her sister later wrote Letters of a Family, uh, The Sketch of Life and Labors of Miss Catherine Lawrence. Just the list goes on and on and on of these wonderful narratives where they tell their stories. So uh, the, the, the short story for me is there was uh, plenty of material. Most of it uh, is, is just, just hasn't really surfaced or certainly hasn't received the attention that I think is due to it. Now, the uh, so, so the background material is there. What about the images themselves? That again, we would all know to look in, you know, Francis Miller's photographic history or uh, other places where we can see well-known collections of Civil War photos. But that's not where these are from. No, but it's funny you mentioned Miller's history because in one of the volumes there is a. I believe it's a full page of Felicia Ann Grundy, who was uh, the daughter of a senator, and she played, she was in Nashville for the entire war, both pre-occupation and post-occupation. One of her claims to fame is she makes contact with Richmond, hoping to form a national organization for nurses, but because of resource issues, it, it never comes to fruition. Uh, I, uh, I happened to be visiting a collector, and um, he was showing me some of his images, and out he pulls a photograph of her. Uh, and I, I was stunned because I recognized her immediately. Um, but uh, I tell you that story because it speaks to these images being personal objects that some have remained with families, other have made, others have made their ways to collectors. Um, trying to unearth those was its own challenge. Um, it was made much easier because through Military Images magazine, I met Chris Ford, who himself is a nurse, and um, had been collecting Civil War nursing materials for the better part of 40 years. And uh, he came over to the house with a plastic bin full of images and other documents. And um, that really got me started. Uh, I was 
practically at least a third to a half of the book are images from his collection, many of which had never been published before. Now, without going into too much detail, because we talked about this last time when you were on the show, but for people listening the first time, when we say images, are these big, uh, eight by ten portraits. Uh, are, right. how, what was the, the typical state of photography in terms of the pictures that you're collecting? Yes, the the Civil War is a time of transition, technical change, particularly in photography, but in many other aspects of our, of our society. Uh, the daguerreotype, which many of your listeners I think might know, uh, the it's a, a hard plate made of silver and copper. Uh, the daguerreotype began to fade from the scene. It was invented in 1930 or 1839, and uh, had market dominance until the late 1850s, when the tintype and the ambrotype came on the scene. And then, right about the start of the Civil War, the carte de visite, which is a paper format about the size of a baseball card became popular and by the end of the war it became the dominant format and the bit of information about the carte de visite or the card photograph as we came to call it in America was that they could be reproduced from a negative which the hard plate images the tin types the amber types the daguerreotypes were not and so you could share you could reproduce those images, share them, and they were incredibly inexpensive. So what you really have going on during the war years is the Facebook. It's really, it's social media. It's Facebook of the 1860s is happening with the photo albums and the sharing of those images. The, uh, unfortunately, people often would record uh, you note the information of who's in the picture on a, a, a frame, but we don't always have those frames nowadays. Yes, and the tintypes and ambrotypes, which were still fairly dominant during the early part of the war, you'd find notes. Sometimes someone would etch into the emulsion of the plate, and you would have an identification that way. Cards to visite were different because they were um, paper, albumin paper that was pasted to a cardboard mount. So the opportunity to sign your name, write your company and your regiment, perhaps a personal note on the back, uh, became something that was easy to do and helped you personalize your image. And, and that would be on, on the mount, which then hopefully we would still have. Um, it's striking yes. in the book that the faces are uh, almost all northern and all, with one exception, white. Why is that? In mm -hmm. casting a net to identify images for the book, I, the criteria that I set up follows the same formula as my other books. Original, wartime, identified images. Mm -hmm. And in searching for those, 
I ultimately found, I believe, about 135 images that I could trace to the actual original. So I'm not, uh, if it was a post-war image of the individual, maybe uh, at an older age, I ruled it out. I really wanted, uh, as my other books, is for you to be able to see the individual as they looked during that time. So that criteria, although I cast a wide net to find them, my criteria was rather narrow. And, uh, and I talk about this in the introduction to the book. One, uh, one of the challenges I found was locating African-American um, women. I had no success finding even one identified image. And the same was true for Southern women. I, I, ha I have a few in the book, but not many. It was very difficult to find those images. And as I've talked about in the past, when I produce a book, it tends to bring out a number of images. This is particularly true when my African-American book came out. A number of images began to surface after that. Now, part of that was coincident with the sesquicentennial, but still, more images are coming out. And that's part of my view of what the Faces series is able to do. The power of it is that it helps to surface these images and help us to become aware how important they are to our American story. So if there are people with images of Southern nurses or African-American nurses, uh, hopefully they will come forward, go to their local museum or contact you directly uh, military images magazine and, and we can maybe see these we'll talk more about more of the faces of civil war nurses that's the name of the book by ronald s coddington that we're discussing tonight with the author i'm jerry prokopovich this is civil war talk radio streaming live the leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Ronald S. Coddington, author of Faces of Civil War Nurses. We've been talking about the, uh, the, the research that goes into finding these photographs and the stories behind them. Uh, Ron, a question I, I have to ask that, that fits this kind of research is, did you find anything that really surprised you as you were going through these uh, uncovering these photographs, or maybe what surprised mm-hmm. you most is a better way to put it. Mm. I was surprised literally everywhere I turned in this project because my knowledge, going in, my knowledge uh, of the role of nurses was um, was minimal. Uh, I think some of the some of the most powerful stories to me are those women who worked to the point where they were just exhausted uh, and and couldn't do it. They couldn't work anymore. They just worked themselves literally to death. Uh, there's one of the stories I think is most touching is uh, a woman named Anne, Anna Maria Ross, who was in Philadelphia. And um, she helped establish a hospital. And in doing so, worked herself so, so hard and for so long without a rest that she fell ill. And on the day that the hospital was um, the ribbon cutting ceremony, if you will, she died that same day day never got to see the fruits of her labor and um her story stays with me there's little snippets of um uh, other individuals and how they reacted to the circumstances around them uh carrie mcgavick in franklin tennessee when the battle comes to her home she could have fled uh her 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 home was called carton she could have fled she remained behind. There's a, a description of her with blood-soaked dress helping more and more and more men into her house. Uh, there's a New York woman, Almira Fales, who is in Washington, D.C. when, uh, when uh, Lincoln is elected, and she reacts by gathering lint to make bandages. That's her first response. Mm-hmm. And her neighbors worry about her mental health. Uh, but she she's firm in the belief that this great war is coming. And this is December of 1860. So these little, little snippets, uh, little scenes of so many of these women stand out for me. And what unites them is in this moment, this horrible moment in our nation's history, they they stood up and they wanted to be involved. And there was no real path 
especially in the beginning, for them to do it. You know, if you were a man, you go to your local recruitment office, you sign up, you become a soldier. There's an infrastructure to support you. If you're a woman who wants to be a nurse, you really have few choices. And so many of them just struck out on their own uh, and came looking to be involved. And somehow, by hook or crook, they made their way in. The uh, the story about Elmira Fails was one that I, I noted uh, as well, that, that the woman who predicted the war. Uh, yes. A great story. Now, you, we've been talking about these women with the assumption that all Civil War nurses are women. Of course, you know, we know Walt Whitman and other men served in a nursing role, but you've chosen not to include them in this volume. Is that a conscious decision? Very much so. I, uh, all, there certainly were men. Uh, you mentioned Walt Whitman, the most famous Mm-hmm. and a number of others uh, that moved through the Sanitary Commission and the Christian Commission, particularly in the northern states. Um, but what I really wanted to, to, to capture and to shine a light on was uh, if you were uh, a woman, your, your choices, your ability to get involved was an uphill struggle. And if you were a man, the army was always an option. But if you had health issues or issues related to your faith, if you're a Quaker, for example, you might not decide to make that choice. And so um, it was a a bit of a hard decision for me to make uh, at first because I, I grappled with the idea of doing a broader story of nursing during the Civil War. But the more, because my entry point was women, I found that area, that subject, so interesting to me that I decided to stay focused on the experience of women during the war. Now, having said that, I did not include those, that smaller group of women who uh, impersonated men uh, or hid their identities. I avoided I avoided those individuals because there have been several books on that subject. I wanted to write about women who were who por- women who portrayed women, women who were uh, their own selves. But I did include a couple of uh, the Vandiers to uh, uh, have representative examples of the persona of women who um, joined a regiment, much like a soldier. They were unofficial representatives of the regiment, but in some ways they followed a similar path that a soldier might follow. The Vivandier, the, 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 the uh, person who accompanied the, the regiment, daughter of the regiment, sometimes called. Uh, exactly. One that you, you describe one here, uh, French Mary, who again, featured at, at Gettysburg prominently, mm-hmm. uh, is one of the most well-known. Uh, her story is, is, is really one of the remarkable ones in the book, I thought. Very much, uh, gosh, part of the, if there is a name, one of the names I think a lot of folks might know is Mary uh, Tepe, or French Mary, as, uh, as she was called. And um, there's a lovely story about her 
where she's uh, on the front lines or close to the front lines, getting ready to go in with uh, her regiment at Antietam. And um, uh, the officer is basically yelling at her to get back behind the lines. And um, she's not having any of that. She doesn't want any part of it. Uh, she looks up at him and says, maybe I'm not so scared as you are, and just starts laughing. <laughs> she, she makes, she, she's, she's not going to leave the battlefield. Uh, shortly after, she does get uh, clipped in the ankle by a bullet. And, of course, at that point, she is, she's technically wounded. It was, I think, a glancing blow, but it was enough to take her out of action. So there are just. Dis- dis- Lots of interesting stories. Um, you mentioned uh, we mentioned Dorothea Dix, names people have heard of. You don't have photographs of some people, um, uh, you know, Clara Barton or uh, uh, Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth, mentioning two African American mm-hmm. women who are well known. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You, you, in your introduction, you commented how this this book is. Not going to go over that ground again. You're you're trying to tell a different story here. Yeah, those uh, uh, you know th- those um, individuals that you named deserve uh, all all the honor and all the recognition that they've received. But that is on some level fairly familiar ground, and I wanted to reserve as much of this book as possible to document the stories of those individuals who've just largely been lost in time. Uh, Of the the group, Dorothea Dix is certainly, uh, her name pops up throughout the the book because she touched so many lives in the Union Army. There are some well-known names, but not in the context we expect, or at least... uh, Adele Douglas, for example, shows up, uh, the yeah. wife of Senator Stephen Douglas. I I was surprised to find her here. Yeah, I was. Uh, I I've I learned of her story through a letter that came to my attention. She had written uh, a letter for a wounded soldier, and that in itself is not necessarily that's a fairly common circumstance. Uh, the fact that she wrote it caught my attention. And then when I learned where she wrote it, which happened to be in her home, which was being used as a hospital, that made it even more um, more of a, a commentary on her when I think about uh, someone who had just lost her husband, mm-hmm. who now has lost her home and is living in a small side building while her, her the bedrooms, the parlor, everything else is being used to house soldiers, and she's visiting them every day. It's the Civil War that I don't think about. It's the Civil War that I, I haven't, I don't think about, I don't read about it. And so uh, it really becomes personal, the sacrifices that someone like Adele Douglas made for the cause. Let me ask, we have a few minutes left. I wanted to get this in quickly. Uh, a question about technology and uh, how that affects the way we can see these images today. Are, are there developments that make it possible for us to learn more about 
these photographs than we could have done 10 years ago? Uh, or is, is are we moving in that direction? Do, do you... Moving in a direction of understanding the technology? No, no. Do we have technology now that allows us to see these photographs in a different way than, than Bruce Catton could have seen them uh, 50 years ago? Mm. Yeah, I think... Um, well, I, I, there's two two points that come to mind. One of them is Bruce Catton being uh, the, the the historian of a generation who um, inspired many of the collectors. I, I I call them the the pioneer generation, or to borrow a phrase from my friend uh, Ross Kelbaugh, who has written about Civil War photography, uh, the centennial generation. Catton keeps popping up as someone who motivated these, in some cases, young kids to start collecting. So from that period of time, so many more images have surfaced. Uh, and the Civil War portrait photography that I'm interested in has been on this journey since the 1950s and 60s from being curios that folks didn't know much about to being part of museum collections, Library of Congress, probably the most notable of them. So there certainly is more, more of those images have surfaced. Scholarship about those images has likewise increased. Um, so we certainly know more about those images. The other thought that comes to mind is um, uh, colorization of Civil War photography is something that we're seeing a lot of nowadays. Most recently, I saw a website where they're using technology to animate the faces. So the soldier you're looking at, the tintype, all of a sudden begins blinking his eyes or smiles. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm of mixed opinions about that because when I think about Peter Jackson's uh, exactly. World War One documentary, what he did and what his team did to restore and preserve all of that gets another generation fired up about it. Um, then there's a purist in me that's a collector, and I sit back and I think, oh, my gosh, you can't take the blemishes. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, so um, I'm, I, I, I have both of those. I hold both of those sets of feelings in mind. That, that makes sense. I, I totally get that. Um, yeah. Just in 30 seconds, uh, are you working on another Faces book or a different project? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm officially finished with uh, the Faces series. I've loved it. But I think I've said all I want to say. Thank you. My next book is about the Carte de Visite. And oh. um, I want to tell that larger story because it's always been relegated to the um, sort of second-rate photograph that came after the daguerreotype. I'm going to showcase the carte de visite, and I'm going to bring it up to the modern time. Well, that will be something for us to look forward to. When you do, we'll, we'll bring you back on Civil War Talk Radio and talk about that as well. Uh, I'm sure it will be as, as interesting and uh, absorbing a book as this one was. Listeners, if you have any remote interest in the topic uh, Faces of Civil War Nurses by Ronald S. Coddington will please you, I predict. Uh, Ron, it's been a pleasure talking with you again. Jerry, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you about carts to visit sometime in the future.
We'll definitely do that. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.